The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It's a privilege, as always, to spend this time with you. Uh, so thankful that we can look together at God's Word. Uh, this morning, we are going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 9. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 9. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. 11. Revelation, chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. We're continuing our study through this incredible book. Last, last week, we looked at the first four trumpets. This week, we're going to look at the fifth. So again, that's Revelation, chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told, do not harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, this is a difficult text for us. Um, The meaning, maybe, is not obviously clear or apparent. Uh, But Lord, we believe your promise that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the rest, so that we can be complete as your people, ready uh, to live the lives you've given us to live. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, your Holy Spirit would fill us, give us understanding. Lord, please help me to teach this passage clearly and faithfully. And Lord, we pray for each one who hears your word, that your work would be done, that this wouldn't just be uh, an intellectual curiosity, but Lord, that it would hit our minds and our hearts and our lives very deeply for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you tell people you're preaching through Revelation, you get different reactions. Uh, Some people are excited, you know, awesome. Others are very worried. Uh, scared of this book. And I think some of those responses come from texts like this one. Uh, To the modern reader, this is maybe one of the strangest texts in the entire Bible. Uh, 
To the Christian, it can seem so distant from what we're used to in the Bible that uh, we feel like we have no idea what to do with it. And of course, we want to respond to God's word, but to do that, we have to understand what it means. So we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. So remember the main theme, the main message is that Jesus is king. He reigns right now and he wins and so will all his people. And so this book is meant to encourage us to endure faithfully through these last days of tribulation between Jesus' first coming and his return. As we've seen, Revelation is structured with a series of sevens. So we had a vision of Jesus in the beginning, followed by letters to the seven churches on how Christians ought to live. We had a vision of God's throne room, followed uh, by the scroll that has seven seals to give us perspective through tribulation. Then as that seventh seal was opened, we got this new vision uh, before uh, God's throne, this altar in the throne room where the seventh seal is open, and that brings us seven trumpets. Well, last week we looked at the first four trumpets, and we saw that they signify um, themes of God's wrath occurring on the earth even now. They're, they're filled with themes of the Exodus. We saw that just as God punished unrepentant Egypt as part of his deliverance of his people Israel, so God, in many ways, is judging this unrepentant world we're in right now as part of his deliverance of his church. So that takes us this morning to this fifth trumpet where we encounter these almost uh, Picasso painting-like images of these locust beasts. And so I think there's just kind of three important questions I want to try to answer with you this morning. Number one, how are we to understand these locust-like beasts. Uh, What are they? How are we supposed to see them? Number two, how are we to understand what they do, uh, what they're after? And then as we get some clues about those things, we'll try to understand how we are supposed to respond. What is the message of this portion of scripture saying to us and how do we respond to it? So let's begin. First of all, a little bit of background. Uh, It's so important, I think, to read Revelation biblically and symbolically. Uh, We've realized week after week, page after page, Revelation is packed full of symbolism, isn't it? So we need to read it that way. But also we have to see that this symbolism, far more often than not, comes from the Old Testament. So we have to go and look at the Old Testament and understand how those ideas were used there, and that gives us great clarity. It's the key, really, for understanding how these symbols are being used in Revelation. So just remember some of what we've seen as we get ready for our fifth trumpet this morning. Uh, Last week, we saw especially that these trumpets signify limited aspects of God's wrath today on a world that will not repent. Uh, Context told us that, Revelation 9, 20, John says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And so so this is a warning uh, we're seeing to all people to repent and turn to the living God. Uh, But in that regard, um, it's pretty clear, no matter how we Um, figure the details specifically, it's pretty clear that this section is about the wrath of God. 
in one way or another. And so uh, week after week, we are needing to unpack this theme of God's wrath. And so we remember some fundamentals. Number one, the living God of the Bible is a holy God. Uh, he is set apart in his perfections. He's eternal. He's sufficient in himself. He is life. He is morally perfect. He's perfectly good. He loves the good according to his perfect character, and therefore he perfectly hates what is evil. In fact, he loves his own glory, and it is right for him to do so. He alone is most valuable, most beautiful. Only he can satisfy our hearts. And this theme of God's holiness is so prominent uh, throughout the whole Bible, but in Revelation as well. Look at Revelation 4.8. It's a vision of the throne room of God, and the creatures here are worshiping, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We see God's sufficiency, his eternality, and we get that threefold repetition, holy, holy, holy. Uh, and in the scriptures, when something is repeated threefold like that, it's just all the emphasis there possibly could be. And it's just pressing in on this reality that our almighty God is holy. He is set apart. You know, we've seen that threefold repetition of God's holiness in Revelation 4.8. Last week, we heard it from this eagle that signifies kind of swift judgment. We saw this in Revelation 8.13, but this eagle is different. He's the kind of eagle who warns his prey of what is coming. And there in Revelation 8.13, the eagle said, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. I think there's a connection in these threefold repetitions. God is holy, 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 which means as he encounters our sin and our rebellion, the response is woe, 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 which means uh, his wrath that is so deserved is coming. And this is just a core aspect of reality. We have each sinned and despised and rejected the holy God. And God in his holiness has just wrath against sin. You know, you get just a taste of this in your own mind, in your own heart, when you see evil in the world, injustice in the world, and you feel this kind of righteous anger stirring up in you. You can take that as just one little drop of what, of what is occurring in a holy God as he in his perfect wisdom and perfect holiness sees evil in, in its perfect clarity. And comes to bring his justice. God is just. The punishment will fit the crime. And wrath will come in justice from a holy God who's the judge of the earth. It's such an important reality. And it's a huge aspect of what's happening here in Revelation. And we begin to understand that God's wrath often comes in surprising ways. Uh, one version of that I think we see in the book of Romans, and it pertains to our passage today, so I want to address that just for a little bit. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the universal need for the gospel. We need God's um, salvation as seen in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done. 
That is the only hope for salvation. We need the gospel so badly, Paul says, because God's wrath is being revealed. So in Romans 1.18, Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul is saying, we, we kind of know there's a holy God who is worthy of our honor and our thanks and our devotion, but we don't like that idea. And so we suppress that and we twist that. We want to do away with that. So Paul continues in Romans 8, 20. He says, so they're out with, they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And there it is, in our, in our sin, and our dislike of God, and our suppression of the truth about God, we replace God with false gods. And then here's where we see one version of God's wrath. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers. Do you hear in that threefold repetition, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up? This is a form of God's wrath. What does it mean? Sometimes God's wrath is to let you continue in and move forward in loving the wrong things. Sometimes his wrath is seen in giving you over to love more and more the evil that you choose. It's as if in a way God is saying, that's what you want and not me. So his, his wrath is expressed in saying, okay, fine, have more of it. Continue in loving what is evil. It's not just that God has wrath for sin. It's that in many ways, sin is God's wrath. That he allows us to pursue it, to love it, to seek it out. And I think that idea, that expression of God's wrath relates to this passage in Revelation. In Romans, in just wrath, God sometimes gives people over to the sin that they love. In Revelation, in God's wrath, God gives people over to the spiritual leadership they have preferred. So let's uh, start considering these creatures in this text. Uh, verse 1, the fifth angel blows his trumpet, you see a star falling from heaven to earth. He's given the key to the shaft of this bottomless pit, and he opens it. The first thing to see here is that Jesus is totally sovereign over this moment. Um, he is the one who's opened the seal. He is the one who holds the keys. He's the one who's allowed this key to be used in a certain way. He's the one who's sovereign over this whole event. You see later in the text that somehow the time is limited. You see later in the text that somehow the extent is limited. And so it's good to see, it's good to remember that evil itself is on a leash. Jesus is in control. And he is using this for his good and sovereign purposes. That's the first thing to see. Jesus remains in sovereign control. 
But now we start to try to unpack these, uh, these difficult details. We see especially this idea of uh, locusts and scorpions. Let's just think about that for a moment. You know, it's far from our modern experience, uh, but the ancient world was deeply concerned about locusts and scorpions. And you can see why. Um, locusts can come out of nowhere and wipe out an entire harvest in days. Locusts can come out of nowhere bringing terrible famine, and there really was not very much you could do about it. It's just foreboding, impending, disaster, coming out of nowhere, overwhelming, and there it is. Famine has come. And scorpions were trouble as well. They hide in the corners. You know, they sneak into your shoes in the evening. They're painful and sometimes very dangerous. And so this idea of of something hidden that brings pain, and somehow in this image, John has uh, put these things together, these locusts. Uh, with stings like scorpions. So there's this sense of foreboding, um, incoming danger. Of course, these things are also an echo of wrath, and we see this very clearly from the Old Testament. Like, Like the other trumpets we saw last week, the fifth trumpet sounds a lot like the plagues of Egypt. I'll take you to Exodus chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. So just pause there. There's the theme of unrepentance. God has been warning Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, How long are you going to not repent? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Then verse 4, For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. So there we have this theme, right? Of this judgment coming on the unrepentant as warning. Step after step after step, more after more after more. You need to repent, you need to repent. They won't repent judgment comes. You see the same thing in the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel sounds a lot like our text in Revelation. This is Joel chapter 2. In Joel, the prophet is talking about an impending uh, locust epidemic that's coming on an unrepentant Israel. So this is Joel chapter 2 verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All All faces grow pale like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. So looking back to the Old Testament, we see that this passage in Revelations is really uh, an echo of those moments. This passage in Revelation is an echo of God's judgment on an unrepentant Egypt uh, as he saves his people. It's an echo of Joel chapter 2, that is, the nation won't repent, and locusts come like an army. But of course, these locusts in Revelation, these are like no locusts we've ever seen. These locusts are very strange. Let's get into that a little bit. First of all, they're strange and how they look. Uh, 
By the way, in verses 7 to 10, you see the word like, I think it's eight times. They're like this, they're like that. It leads us again to look into the symbolism, to ponder what these symbols can mean. So they're like horses. Well, maybe you could say horses are like the tanks of the time. This is an army on the move. Uh, they have crowns. So, so what does that symbolize? Well, it's, there's probably an, a certain authority for what they do. That makes sense in context. Now, it's the limited authority, and I think they overplay their authority, but it's a real authority they have. Uh, three, they, have, uh, they like human faces. Maybe this means they're personal beings. I think it does. Twisted, but, but real personal realities. Um, they have hair like a woman's hair. I think this is a play on the antenna of a locust and long hair. Uh, what does it mean? I wonder if it doesn't mean they're deceptive. I think it means they can look good in a way, but they are not good. Um, they have teeth like lion's teeth. Well, that's easy enough. They're, they're vicious, and they'll eat you alive. Uh, they have breastplates, so they're strong in battle. They have wings making massive amounts of noises like chariots, so it's an active, powerful army. And then, strangely, they have tails and stings like scorpions. Well, again, a scorpion's hiding in the corner but inflicting dangerous pain. That's part of what these locusts are like. So they're different in how they look. They're also different in what they are after. Look at Revelation 9, 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. I mean, that's, that's strange because that's what locusts do. They eat the grass. They eat green plants. They eat trees. But not these locusts. Revelation 9.4, they only harm those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these creatures, whoever they are, they only have authority in a certain way to bring a certain harm on a certain kind of people. So what are these things? I think it's pretty clear in context that these are demons. These symbols, these images signify the reality of demonic work. Um, remember what Jesus said. Uh, after he sent out his disciples in ministry, Luke 10, 17, um, his disciples come back and they say to him, Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy. Well, if we're, if we're familiar with Jesus' teaching, we got these ideas of things falling from heaven and the, the use of the word scorpion, that, that leads us very clearly into the reality that we're, we're thinking of demons. I wonder, as I say that, um, how do you hear that? What do you think about that? Do you believe in demons? Have you ever had, you know, one of those horrible moments when you just take in how incredibly evil this world can get? Do you ever wonder that maybe it was inspired by something more, that there's a darkness and oppression, a twisting and influence? The Bible is very clear from start to finish that there is, in fact, spiritual reality like that. 
And I want to be careful. We're not to overplay this. Uh, for instance, I don't need a demon's help to sin. Uh, and when I do sin, I can't blame them. Uh, that's on me. And no, demons are not behind every misfortune of the day. Like, it's not demonic that you couldn't find a parking spot. Um, but yes, there is a demonic reality that deeply influences people and the world. And that's what these are. And I think it's most clear in verse 11. Look at their king, Revelation 9, 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Well, that's what demons are. They are fallen angels. They are spiritual beings who have rebelled against God and hate him. And so this may be, even be the devil himself. His name, uh, Abaddon, Apollyon, that means destroyer. And that's what the devil does. That's what demons do. They are fallen angels who love to destroy didn't Jesus say this in John 10? That's what he, John 10, 10, he's speaking of the devil, and he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. So let me try to sum this up then so far. How are we to understand these locusts? Well, I think these grotesque images give us the flavor of an invisible spiritual reality that's occurring right now. And here it is. One aspect of God's wrath is that he has given a limited authority to demons so that they can torment in some way those who refuse to repent. Just as God's wrath is seen in giving us over to further love more and more sin, so is God's wrath seen in giving people over to the spiritual leadership they have preferred. How do they do what they do? I mean, I think we ought to take these, this stinging um, symbolically. So what does it mean? Well, first of all, I think it's clear from context, demons bring spiritual famine through deception. They bring spiritual famine through deception. First of all, it's quite clear what locusts do. They eat the harvest and bring famine. That's what they do. There's nothing left. But this, of course, this is not a physical famine here, not in this trumpet. This is a spiritual famine. It's a lack of being able to feed on God and his truth leaves us starving. And it happens through deception. Jesus said this about the devil in John 8, 44. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So he, he wants to starve people out. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We see it, don't we? What's, what's a major way the destroyer destroys? 
He lies. This is how evil infected this world in the first place, isn't it? This is, this is how the human fall into sin started. It started with a lie from the ultimate demon. Satan came to Adam, to Eve, and said, the living God of the Bible is not true. Or he's not good. The living God of the Bible is not good. Satan said his words, it's not true. You can't, you can't trust this. And he said, it's better off if you would replace him. It's better off if you would leave the holy creator God as your authority, as your source, as your truth. It'd be better off if you left him behind and went somewhere else. You need a different spiritual leadership. In fact, you make yourself happy. You can be like God, Satan said. You be your own authority, your own satisfaction. It was the lie that destroyed. It was the lie that ruined us. You think of what God offers all people in Isaiah 55. This generous offer from the Lord God, Isaiah 55, verse 2, he asks, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God wants to feed you. Verse 3, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. Do you see? He wants to feed you on the truth of who he is. And so demons want to starve you out on the lie. Demons, through the voices of every variety of this world's idolatry, will convince you of the opposite of what God has said. They say, spend the money of your heart on that which is not bread. So you won't hear, so you won't live, so that you can be destroyed because demons bring spiritual famine through deception. Here's another thing they do. In Revelation 9, verses 5 to 6, uh, we're told they can only harm a certain kind of people, those who have not been sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. And we're also told what a little bit this harm looks like in verse 6. These people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. What does this mean? Well, to be sealed, and we saw this back in chapter 7, to be sealed is to belong to Jesus. To be sealed is to belong to Jesus. Just as... uh, Maybe in the Exodus, the blood of the lamb was on the door of the houses. So for all who've trusted in Christ, his name is on your head. You've been sealed. You belong to him. To be sealed is to know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. It's to trust him. It's to be saved by him and what he's done. It's to have repented. It's to have turned to him. It's to keep repenting. So you see, this is really good news if you're a Christian. These demons only have the authority to torment those who don't trust Christ. That's the only place they have authority. But this is how this stinging works, at least in one way. Remember this, in verse 6, you get this picture of just despair, right? It's this hopeless despair, longing to die but not being able to, just a darkness of the heart. Their heart has been 
stung in some way. And it's, it's so often invisible, right? But it's this sense, life has no meaning. Life has no hope. I'm alienated from God and his truth. And it's the sense, I think, of hopeless condemnation. Condemnation. You've been exposed and, there, and you're not good and there's no hope for you. I think Revelation draws this theme out uh, a little bit later. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, there's this kind of celebration in heaven. We'll see what they're celebrating. Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the Lord. This is one major aspect of what Satan does. He accuses. Have you heard his voice before? The voice that says, you're you're not even good enough to go to God. Why would he listen to you? The voice that says, there's no forgiveness for you. There's no way out of this. You're on your own. Uh, It's hopeless, this deep condemnation. And so they're celebrating Revelation 12. Due to what Christ has done, uh, his voice is over. It's defeated for God's people. He can no longer accuse with any authority. And look at verse 12, Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So the devil's here in his own anger. Part of what he does is he condemns with a hopeless despair. So I think these grotesque images, again, symbolize what's occurring in hidden places. Uh, The unbelieving heart that will not repent, running from God in rebellion, deceived, spiritually starving, fraught with hopeless, condemned despair. So again, I, I think then that this trumpet signifies... The wrath of God in giving over those who follow the devil's lead to the devil's control. He gives them over to the spiritual leadership they have preferred. So you might say to me, wait, are you saying that uh, if you're not a Christian, you're a Satanist? And uh, no, I'm I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if Jesus is the only way to salvation, and he says he is, and who he is shows that he is, I'm saying that if Jesus is the only way to salvation, then Satan would be very happy to send you on any other way. And I'm saying that when our hearts prefer those other ways, part of God's wrath is to give us over to that. And so then we are no, uh, we're not then under his protection and his salvation 
We're left to fend for ourselves. And here's the great irony. You know, you'd think the devil who hates God would be mainly after Christians. And in a certain way, he certainly is after Christians. We should think about that. But you know, he has no real authority there. He has no real authority over me, over, over you. If, if we're God's people, he has, he has no real authority here. So, so what then does Satan spend his time eating, if you will? Isn't it horrible? He eats his own. He stings his followers. And that's part of this message here, is that the devil's deception seems so good. Your sin will satisfy you. But you know, the devil has a plan for your life too. Lie, steal, kill, and destroy. What a, war- what a warning this is. If you think running from a holy God will make you happy, this text is saying you have no idea whose lead you're ultimately following in that. Did you think you were really only following yourself? Do you think there's not another inspiration to this? Be careful. The option that you choose may eat you alive. It may bring spiritual famine, hopeless condemnation. No, this text is telling us running to God is our only hope for being happy. So how should we respond to the message this text is giving us? In the face of the idea of deceptive, hopeless condemnation, we start to think about what we need And what we need is a true priest. We need the true priest, one who can truly represent us for our good, one who can heal us, one who intercedes for us, one who builds us up. And then we remember who's in charge of this whole project, Revelation 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. We see again, Jesus is called the Lamb. That's because he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's why he's also called our priest. For he is the one who gave himself up for us to bring us reconciled, ransomed, righteous to the Father. So the ultimate response here to this passage calling for repentance is to repent by looking to Jesus as our priest. See who he is, see what he's done. He's the eternal son of God who's taken on flesh and he stood against the wiles and the wares of the devil. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life for us and he died on the cross for our sins. Colossians says, trampling our enemies, bringing them to open shame, breaking the authority, any authority of the evil one, died on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation, and he rose from the dead. He reigns now, and he's interceding. Look at some of what Jesus does for us as our priest, Romans 8, 33. Paul asks these these important questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to come and condemn you for what you've done? Now, there's a lot they could, they could work with, right? There's a lot you could condemn me for. So who could bring any charge against God's elect? In a way, many could, but, 
No one can in a way that sticks. Why? It's God who justifies. Through Jesus Christ, if you've repented and put your faith in him, God has made you righteous with the righteousness of Christ himself. He has said of you, innocent, forgiven, welcome. Verse 34, Paul, Paul continues, who is to condemn well, many may condemn, but again, the condemnations can't stick, and here's why. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Your priest is praying for you. The wrath is gone. Christ, who lived for you, died for you, rose for you, now intercedes for you, and his prayer is effective, is from the one beloved by the Father, from the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one who has done all things according to the will of the Father. And that's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Run to your priest. Look to your priest. You see, the gospel sets us free as it undeceives Demonic influences want to deceive and destroy. The, the gospel enlightens. We see the truth of our sin, and we see the reality of God's goodness in Christ. God is good. His word is true, and he does satisfy. He is a feast, the feast for our souls. So one response, repent by looking to your priest. If you're not a Christian, Capital R, repent. Turn your life to Jesus Christ. Run to him and he will receive you. He has never turned down a real repentance. If you already are a Christian, it's a life of small R repentance. Every, every day, every moment, we're turning again to our Lord. There's one other way I think we need to respond here. There's another aspect of repentance that has fascinated me this week. You know, when you're, when you're studying for a sermon and you come across a theme and an idea, you, you start kind of following those tangents all around the Bible. And in looking up references to demons, I was surprised again with this regular contrast between characteristics of the demonic and what ought to be Christian character, what ought to be Christian behavior. So there's a, there's a real way implied by this passage that Christians ought to show their repentance. We want to turn to our ultimate priest, the true priest, the Lord Jesus, and we show that we've turned to him by being a priest like him. Revelation 1.5, John said this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. You know, demons aren't the only thing poured out on the earth. We are too. They come in a certain way, a certain wrath. We are to be here in God-glorifying mercy. So I want to think of a few ways we show our repentance by being priestly. First of all, priests are awake to what the devil is doing. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you know in some way Satan's after us? He's after the church. 
Just because Satan has no authority here doesn't mean he won't mess around here. So we are to be awake. We are to resist. Priests know this. But priests do this with a priestly wisdom. Look at what James says. I think this is amazing. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? And some of us in our hearts are like, ooh, me, I'm wise. Yeah. Could you answer that way? By your good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You think you're wise? This is what wise wisdom looks like. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What? Is demonic. <clears throat> when our methods are not meek, we look more beastly than we look priestly. James continues, James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't James saying don't have demonic characteristics in the way you relate. Be priestly, not beastly. Priests have a priestly wisdom. Also, number three, priests don't eat their own. Demons go after those who follow them. Why do Christians sometimes do this with one another? If you have a genuine trust in the gospel in common with someone else, it's kind of locust-like to eat them alive. We, as priests, are to build one another up, as Christ does for us, Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We don't want to eat our own. We want to build up one another, as Jesus does for us, Number four, priests control their anger and watch their words. Look at Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, such strong words. How many of you are like, oh, I want to let the devil in tonight? You know, let's open the door for the devil. Well, of course not, but we do it when we stay angry. We do it when we let our anger corrupt our words. Just two verses later, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Charles Spurgeon once said, Satan hates, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy 
to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. In fact, Spurgeon says, he attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. Wow. Finally, priests love, don't they? Priests love, 1 John 3.10, by this is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we respond by repenting and turning to our priest. And as we turn to our priest, we show our repentance by being priestly. In conclusion, uh, this is just another picture of how God is holy and his wrath on the unrepentant is very real. And we remember that all the wrath we see in various ways in this world now serves as the warning of the ultimate wrath that will come when Jesus Christ returns. And so this text shouts out to all who will listen, repent, turn, turn to the priest, turn to Jesus, trust in him and what he has done. And if you have, as you do, strive to be like him in his mercy for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, surprising, difficult, amazing uh, section of your word. And we pray that it would drive us to have a healthy fear of you and your wrath, that it would drive us to turn to Christ with all our minds and our hearts to trust him, the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who saves us from our sin and brings us to you as children, the one who intercedes. And Lord, for those of us who do love him, we pray that we would be far more like him than these locusts, that we would have his character in our minds and our hearts, and it would display itself in our communication, our relationships, our lifestyles. We pray this for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.